Welcome to The Good Divorce Show, where we can help you learn how to navigate the journey of divorce with less conflict, less debt, and equip you not to just get divorced, but also learn how to be divorced. Your host, certified divorce coach Karen McNenny, shares her wealth of knowledge, gets advice from other relationship experts, and interviews couples who learn how to have a good divorce, so you can too. Now here's your host, Karen. Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for joining me this week. I am Karen McNenny, your good divorce coach. And today we are chatting with Jessica Beyer. Can we call you just Jess? You can definitely call me just Jess. Yeah. Well, Jess is one of these serial entrepreneurial individuals who has built for you specifically a beautiful software, an app called Habit Money. Jess came through her own journey, not only as a child of divorce, but then also as someone seeking, where am I going to put my skills? Um, Part of her journey was getting an MBA at Stanford and eventually becoming the most surprising founder of all, because you're the first to admit, Jess, money was not really your jam uh, not so long ago. So she is here to talk with us today, not just about what to do with your money, but more importantly, how we interact with our money day to day and make healthy habits so we feel empowered and capable of maintaining a financial sustainable life. Welcome to the show, Jess Beyer. Thank you, Karen. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I want a little more information about the stepping stones that brought you into creating this app. And then we'll talk more about the app itself. Sure. So I would say it's sort of a dual path, one that's really personal and one that's really professional. So when I came to Stanford, my vision was to become a startup founder. And I was incredibly naive because I didn't know what that meant. Um, I'd previously been a consultant. I'd heard about the Silicon Valley situation and I knew I wanted to go get my hands dirty, but that was the extent of it. And so this was supposed to be my experimentation ground. Um, The question was, what was I going to start? And so until I had an idea, my plan was I'll go work at a bunch of startups, learn a ton, kind of get a roadmap for what to do and what not to do. Um, So I started at a larger company called Stitch Fix, which is now public. Um, But when I first joined, it was pre-IPO, it was still a few hundred people and kind of in that high growth phase. It was was also run and founded by a woman. And so it was a 90% women company. And so coming from the traditional world of finance, it was a total opposite cultural experience. Um, And then went to a smaller company. I was actually hire number three at a startup called TryNow, which was effectively doing what Stitch Fix was doing, but empowering other e-commerce brands to do the same thing, offering try before you buy for their shoppers. Um, and it was at TryNow when I realized the problem I wanted to solve. And that's where I kind of get into the personal, which was, um, you know, like you mentioned in my intro, I'm a child of divorce. I always like to joke that I made the best consultant because I was super used to living out of a suitcase, which some people laugh at. Some people kind of look at me who haven't been through a divorce and don't think it's It's a true thing. Our children become professional packers. We Mm -hmm. are. Um, And I'm still pride myself. I'm really good at it. Um, But uh, my, my kind of journey through my parents' divorce was watching my mom, um, you know, she didn't have a college degree. She actually immigrated from England to Montana of all places, um, where she married my dad and had two kids. And, um, I don't necessarily need to get into their marriage, but obviously that was a challenge for her. And so when my parents started getting a divorce, she was really economically disadvantaged. And throughout, you know, my childhood, I watched her have to make choices that, were not necessarily aligned with what she envisioned wanting to do in the world because everything had to be about money and she didn't have the skills or the tools to manage that. And that was a huge motivator for me in my life for why I studied economics and went into consulting and went to Stanford. My internal drive was I want to be fully independent so no one ever has to take care of me. And when I finally end up with a partner, I'm with them because I want to, not because I have to. And, and I just want to oh, celebrate yeah. your mom in that. And and whether it's your mom or it's a dad or we're in a same-sex marriage, 
um, you know, your story is specific to your mother and her coming out, which is not uncommon for women of a certain age who there was a social standard and we all participated and bought into that and had wonderful fathers who were supporting the family um, by leaving and going to work and bringing home the bacon. And we had moms who were supporting the family by making up the bacon, uh, both challenging in their own way. And we've seen those roles shift and change. So for all of our listeners, regardless of what sort of relationship you're in or how you identify in terms of your own gender, these are tools for you. We know historically it has been women who have been disadvantaged, not unlike your own mom. And you weren't really into money. You had to come to terms in your own journey as well. So pick up the story and you're like, ah, there's a problem I can solve. Yeah. I was, I'm in a relationship with my partner. Um, we didn't go through a divorce, but we were actually together before the pandemic. I went through my own personal depression, anxiety moment, and we actually broke apart and then came back together. And now we're in that phase of our relationship where we're doing our own money planning and we make um, a very different amount and we have made different amounts, either me making more or him making more. So again, highlighting the the gender imbalances, the traditional is not necessarily applicable. And we started having this conversation and we both hated it. We honestly are so uncomfortable. My boyfriend is happy for me to share that. He said, I would rather do literally anything include make, including making more money than talk to you about money. Um, <laughs> but Dear. it was really a forcing function for us to start talking about it. And what it made me realize was when we were looking at different products or solutions to help us have this conversation to also help us plan for the future. A lot of what was out there seemed to really be for people who already kind of understand money or are excited about doing it. And so they're more, the products are more like um, just informational, Um, but there wasn't necessarily anything out there that would help you overcome some of those emotional hurdles that you might have attached to money. And that was really a big blocker for us and something quite honestly, we felt embarrassed about. We, you know, we kept saying to ourselves, we know what we should do. Why don't we do it? And that was the click for me um, because when I started talking to people, we were not the only ones who had this problem. Um, And and that's what sent me down the rabbit hole to eventually founding Habit. You talk about it. Some people are familiar with Noom, a lot of advertising out there. Same thing like when we're trying to lose weight, we're trying to change any habit in our life. Like we know what to do, but we can't always get there on our own. So here comes Habit Money. Would you mind just describing for us what the app is? And and at the end of the show, we'll make sure it's in the show notes and how to find it and to bring this valuable tool into your life. But give us a quick picture of how it works and how it can help me. Yeah, totally. Um, and I love the 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 tee up with Noom because I think that's a really applicable example, and it's using the exact same behavioral psychology principles. Um, so habit money is the Noom for personal finance. So the idea is again the baseline. It's an app that helps you track your spending. But unlike the other apps out there that kind of just tell you the example is, hey, Karen, you spent $500 on Amazon last month. You blew your budget. Maybe you shouldn't do that again. What it does is help you bring um, awareness to your spending every day. So just like in Noom, where you track your calories and just the act of doing that helps you bring awareness to your eating. Habit does that with your money. So Every day you have a mindfulness moment where we text you and say, hey, Karen, looks like you swiped your card three times yesterday. Take a moment to go through that spend and not only categorize it, but actually reflect on how you feel because part of the journey that we're taking you through is helping you align your spending to your values um, so that you can feel good about your money and feel confident. Everyone who goes through the habit ends up spending less and saving more. And obviously that's the goal, but a hundred percent of the users after their first 30 days will say, I just feel less stressed. And that was actually one of the number one reasons why I wanted to start this was to overcome that emotional barrier. And that's kind of all the behavioral psychology stuff happening behind the scenes is helping people change habits, change their behavior so they can overcome that emotional blocker 
to get to the point where they can make those rational choices. Like we'd all say and beat ourselves up for saying, oh, why did I, you know, spend $500 at Amazon? I should have put that money in the market. Well, should's a really dangerous word because that assumes we're robots. Um, And so it gets us past that point to be not as judgmental with ourselves and just looking at the money as data and saying, here are the choices I get to make. How do those choices align with my values? And going through that cycle over and over and over to meet your goals. Well, yes. And when you say after 30 days, people feel like, oh, it's less stress Uh, going through my head was I would probably feel some shame because part of the ignorance is bliss is it's just going out. But boy, once you start tracking it, then you're coming to terms with kind of where you lead from in your relationship with money. And we have strange relationships and beliefs and stories around money. What do you find with your users that gets us stuck in terms of our internal stories and thinking? Definitely. Um, So there's this Um, I would say burgeoning segment in behavioral psychology called financial psychology. And I have to give shout outs to uh, Dr. Ted and Brad Klontz and Charles Schaufin, who I have kind of followed their readings as I've developed my own literacy in this space. Um, And it was actually originally created for financial advisors and helping them learn how to talk to their clients about money. Um, And I talked to them too, when I first started this and almost all of them said 90% of their time was spent helping people understand their emotional blockers when it comes to money. Um, And they were like, if we could get over that, we would be much more effective in our jobs. Um, The easy example is, you know, my dad called me the other day and said, the market's down. Should I take all of my money out of the market? All of the evidence would show is that you should leave your money in the market and over time you will make gains. Yes, but no quick moves, dad. No quick moves. No quick moves. Um, but that what that highlights is one of the really interesting examples about just how our brains are wired, um, which is that our, our emotional brain is actually much more developed than our rational brain. Um, and so when there is an emotional trigger, oftentimes the emotional trigger beats us to the punch before the rational. And so part of any product design that is helping you um, overcome that is trying to slow down or delay the reaction to that emotion to let the rational brain catch up. But the other challenge with it is that um, it is not natural to save. As humans, we are hedonistic creatures and we want immediate tangible benefits. What is less tangible and less hedonistic than saving for some distant future? (laughs) I think this is brilliant and kind of lets all of us off the hook and recognizing that building financial stability is counterintuitive and it's maybe even countercultural, at least based on this neurological dynamic that goes on between our rational logical brain and our irrational emotional brain. And I think sometimes we want to dismiss anything that's emotional or rational, like, oh, just get over it. Oh, it's it's like, no, it's really dominant and it's very real. And if you are not aware of your own emotions or how they're running your life, then it's time to sit down and get cozy with your emotional brain because it's in charge often. hundred percent. And you know, what's that old saying, you know, awareness is the first step to recovery. Mm-hmm. This is actually, it's something I should have mentioned earlier as part of the app experience is that it's text-based and you have a human coach on the other side of it. And part of why that human coach is there is to really help kind of reflect these values and these insights back to you to help overcome that emotional aspect. Um, because like you said, if you are not aware of something happening, you have no ability to change your behavior. And for mm-hmm. the record, not everyone is doing quote unquote bad things with their money. And that's actually one of the first moments, like myth bust moments we need to have when they're, when people are working through habit is they use words like, um, I am bad about shopping. I shouldn't spend money on DoorDash. I need to put more in savings. Um, Like these sort of 
judgmental narratives we reflect on ourselves. Um, and we can talk about um, later how, like where those kind of come from, but they're very much generated through our kind of formative experiences. But we play these narratives on ourselves and start judging ourselves. And when we feel bad, we don't feel like dealing with things that make us feel bad. And so even in the first few days when you're going through this, part of the work that um, our users are going through is trying to distance some of that emotional judgment from just the facts of how much things cost. Um, you know, I went to the grocery store yesterday. Usually my boyfriend goes, I spent $95 at Whole Foods. We track our money all the time, but usually I don't buy groceries. And I was blown away. And I sat here and said, wow, you know, I've been looking at our grocery bills and feeling really surprised at how much things cost. And this just really helped me build some awareness around that. Mm -hmm. And I think for anyone who is listening, which is most of us and thinking, I'm just not good with money, or I don't even know how it works. We're mostly underskilled. Jess and I were just reflecting before we started our conversation with you listeners that, you know, we don't get this training in depth. We spend 12, sometimes 20 years in education and in the classroom. I'm so excited. My kids got one semester of financial uh, analysis, personal finance class of learning. And it's one semester and it was an elective. It's not even required. Mm -hmm. So we're learning it on the fly. It's never too late, right? Let's really be clear. You're never too old and it's never too late to learn good money habits to fulfill the financial stability that you're looking for. Absolutely. I think what I would echo Karen, and I was saying this to you earlier when we were prepping, if there's one thing I want your listeners to walk away with, it's a feeling of confidence and capability. Um, you know, there's, there's so much information out there about personal finance. And sometimes I think that can almost have a reverse effect is that it can feel daunting or overwhelming. Um, and what I want to instill in everyone is a sense of kind of reassurance because I was not comfortable with money before I was overwhelmed by the jargon. And that's why I built what I built uh, to figure out what steps they need to take and then to take them. But none of this is rocket science. All of this is very easy, but I will still say it's not just the information. At the end of the day, you already probably know the right things to do with your money. It's just taking the time to articulate those things and then understand how your behaviors and actions are either aligning with the things that you know you want to do. And it comes back again to that behavioral psychology. Oh, it just sounds like such a holistic approach to financial health. When we come back from the break, we're chatting today with Jess Beyer. She is the founder of Habit Money, and we're going to dig in a little bit to the wage gap. Um, some of that has been very gender driven, but even as you face divorce, it's not uncommon that one person has been a higher wage earner than the other and how we make that bridge and how we make sure that things are fair, that big F word that comes up all the time when we talk about divorce. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Are you thinking about getting divorced? Before you call a lawyer, call the good divorce coach, Karen McNenny, a certified divorce counselor, co-parenting specialist, and mediator. Karen's signature good divorce experience will guide you through your divorce journey from the day you make that difficult decision to the day the decree is signed, all for a predictable fee. The Good Divorce Coach will teach you and your partner how to get divorced and be divorced with less conflict and less debt. Visit thegooddivorcecoach.com to get in touch with Karen. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. Welcome back to The Good Divorce Show with Karen McNinney. Have a question for Karen or her guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5788. That's 866-472-5788. Now, back to the show with Karen. 
Hey, thanks for staying with us today here at The Good Divorce Show. I am Kara McNenny, your good divorce coach, and I'm chatting today with Jess Beyer. She is the founder of Habit Money, but also a smarty pants who spent some time getting an MBA at Stanford and studying economics as a serial entrepreneur, is sitting there today in San Francisco chatting with us, but is a Montana girl, which I really love because as you all know, I'm a Montana girl. So we have a little sisterhood going there. You mentioned earlier on, Jess, that, you know, you're a child of divorce and you watched the imbalance that can happen when we're not thoughtful about our divorces. And traditionally, sometimes that imbalance is financial. Sometimes it's about child custody. You know, there was a time where there was a lot of what I would call mom bias, where the kids were just sent to go be with mom or mom would have primary custody and care. And that in and of itself can be a trouble for the family moving forward, as well as we had someone who has a higher wage earner, or maybe that parent, often the mom who was staying at home. Would you mind just sharing a few highlights of how that played out in your own personal experience as as kind of a tale of caution to our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, as you were even just kind of uh, playing that back, Karen, it just made me think about how... I would say relationships and maybe as a result, divorce have gotten much more complex as our roles in society and in the household have become much more multidimensional. You know, like you said, the classic leave it to beaver was dad went to work, mom stayed home with the kids. Um, You could afford, um, you know, a four bedroom house on one salary. Um, So economically, there have been some, some changes that have forced us to, to kind of change roles. And so from my experience, I've actually seen that for, you know, both genders. So my kind of household, when I was growing up, my dad owned a business. My mom, when I was younger, was mostly taking care of us and work was more of a, you know, back burner. And then as they were going through a divorce, Um, She was kind of the person who was kind of in catch up mode when it came to her, you know, economic stability. She didn't go to undergrad. She'd actually moved across the world, um, didn't have a ton of experience. And so was trying to figure out how she would be able to support herself financially. Um, On the other side of it, my dad was actually the primary caregiver and we, he had a primary custody of myself and my brother for most of our childhood. And so it created this really complex dynamic where, you know, the, the court system or the societal system would say, mom just gets the kids, dad just works. Um, but it just wasn't that simple what it's kind of made me realize. And I'm, I'm sure as listeners are hearing this is that there's a lot of places where there's imbalance in relationships. Um, money is one part. Caretaking of the children is another. I don't know if you're you're probably familiar with the concept of first shift, second shift, and third shift. First shift is work. Second shift is home. And then third shift is all of the unseen planning that goes into managing a family and a household. And usually there's probably one primary and one secondary partner in all of those different places. And in relationships, I've actually seen this in some of the users that work with habit. Sometimes I'm kind of becoming their relationship coach because they're trying to find a way to articulate the value that comes from some of those unseen activities. And I can imagine in a divorce, all of that comes to the forefront as you're trying to navigate how you divide those between two households. Yeah, absolutely. And and money can just be so triggering. We live in such an economically driven society that our livelihood is dependent on it. And when you are at the brink of separation, particularly if you have been the lower eight wage earner, there is a, a panic and a concern and it can turn into a scarcity thinking land grab. And that's not what we profess here on The Good Divorce Show and in the experience of trying to get so that both partners are equally stable, right? We're talking about stability. And and maybe we should talk about the F word, Jess. Let's just bring it up. Mm -hmm. We want our divorce to be fair. What does fair mean and how can it become a blind spot to actually long-term health of our finances? Karen, one of the hard things about fair versus equal is there is a time element to it. Uh, if you were to, if if I were to to break up with my boyfriend today, we would not have 
equal financial situations because I have been working on my startup for a year and investing in myself and he has not. He's been making a salary. And so if we were married and we split up, instantly there would be a delta. Um, So the question is really equal and fair over what time horizon. I would imagine that fair or my imagination of fair is how are you both equally set up for comfort and success in in your lives going forward, whether that's being taken care of at retirement, making sure you both have stable homes for your children if you have kids um, and backing all of that out. That also just means figuring out, going back to what we were saying about all of the different kind of requirements of you economically and societally, how do you divide those things up so they are fair? Like a very tangible example could be if one partner is making more and supplementing the income of the other person so they could go to school to then improve their economic outlook over the long run, that would be an example of maybe it's not fair today, but it's going to get them to the point where it's fair tomorrow. And we we hear a lot about the wage gap. And when you reference the wage gap, you identify it isn't just what's happening right now. It's, it's this idea of catching up. And I just want you to say a little bit more about that because I think particularly when we're in the divorce conversation, we're looking at a spreadsheet and dollars and cents today. We're not looking at long-term tax implications. We're not looking at compounding interest and the impact of that on retirement. Like you were just saying, maybe someone needs to go through education so they can start earning money. Social security. There's all sorts of these little nuances that we don't even know what to ask or to think about. So, Master Jess, what should we be thinking about in the moment as we forecast our financial future? That you're asking me the time value of money, which is a very businessy word. And I'm sure even with all of the things that you just listed, Karen, someone who doesn't love money is sitting there going, oh my gosh, what's an IRA? What's a retirement? All of this stuff. And that's kind of the cycle that we often go through. The reality is what we're all trying to do is not work until we die. And so we want to save enough money so we can get to the point where we retire. We're anticipating how much money we will need to live. I realize that's very morbid, um, but that's what we're doing. And so we're saying, okay, how much do we need to make over the course of our working lives so that we can take care of the ones we love and then take care of ourselves? Mm -hmm. That's the question we're asking ourselves. Why the time element matters, this little thing called an interest rate and this little thing called inflation. So Right now, eggs cost a lot more than they used to. Um, I learned that again at my Whole Foods experience yesterday, um, which means in order to have buying power, you need to make even more money. And when you invest your money, you get an interest rate. Essentially, the bank is saying, thank you very much, Karen, for letting me borrow $1,000 from you. I'm going to pay you back some interest to for your, for your kindness. Um, and the earlier you invest, the more interest you make. Um, and that's, you know, kind of the traditional investment route. When it comes down to the wage gap, um, why this matters is when you're splitting a household, you've probably been saving for retirement and saving for your future lives together. And now you need to redefine that for yourselves. The wage gap has traditionally disadvantaged women and people of color and basically non-white men. But I don't want to super focus on that because in a relationship in the vacuum, There's usually two people, and most of the time, one person makes more than the other, unless you have the exact same careers and the the exact same work trajectory. Oftentimes with kids, one person has probably taken on more of the burden, and I don't even want to say burden, the joy of of childcare. Oh, some days it's a burden. (laughs) Let's be serious. Right. And regardless of same-sex marriages, people raising family, those little critters, need care. We have to keep them alive for years. Yeah. Years. And, and that's then an economic, for them. And, and that's an economic value. But when you're splitting up, if one of you needs to re-enter the workforce, if you've taken a period of time out of the workforce, you're re-entering at an economic disadvantage because you just have a gap on your resume. And so part of the, the conversation is how do you how do you catch up? And then you have to ask yourself, well, what does it mean to catch up? 
And then the next question is, well, how much money do I need? Well, how much does it cost to, to exist? And that's the spiral. And oftentimes when I'm working with users who are going through this conversation, who are going through a divorce or are starting to have that conversation, part of the tendency to want to avoid this is feeling dumb because you don't know I'm doing air quotes. I realize the podcast and you can't see, you feel dumb because you don't know the cost of these things. Um, and I just kind of want to throw that out the window because why would you, if you haven't had to do that, but you're fully capable of figuring that out. Um, you know, I actually have a blog article I wrote the other day that was like a very tactical, if you graduate from college today, how do you build a budget? And it's a simple thing, like figure out the city you're going to live in, Google apartments for rent in that city and find the average based on the neighborhood you look at. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sound and it's it, the intent here is to show people that it's really doable to figure out those costs of living. So that then you have a starting point and you can say, okay, well, this is how much money I need to make to live a sustainable life and the standard of living I want. And then you can figure out, okay, what's the path for me to get to that earning potential. And that's where I think we go back to that conversation around fair versus equal, because it might take an investment on one partner's behalf to make sure that that other partner is set up. And I think I'll wrap it up by saying as a child of divorce, the best thing that you can do for each other is make sure that the, the situation for the parents is reflected in like the situation for the children, you know, we, we see it, we're creative, resourceful and whole. And, and we see when the dynamic isn't fair and, and isn't equal, you know, I think divorce makes kids grow up really fast, especially when they're involved in some of those adult conversations. And so if I can give a word of caution, it's to be generous with making, you know, time and money fair, because it's really investing in your children um, and their relationship with, with you uh, going into adulthood. Oh, that's so lovely. And, and money is, it's just a hot spot, and it can be hard for couples to talk about it in and out of relationship. But even if you divorce, like, you know, I divorced 13 years ago, my kids were like in first and second grade. Well, now they're heading to college. And I'll tell you what, dad and I are having all sorts of financial conversations again. And it's FAFSA forms. And what can we support? And now they have cars and now it's insurance. So don't think that you're done. Uh, marriage is done. Relationship is not. And financial entanglement is not. So how can we have safe conversations around money with our partners? Karen, I have to imagine it's probably doubly, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's doubly scary when you're trying to have that conversation with your partner, because oftentimes the way relationships end can be because of disagreements over money. Not all, obviously, but a lot of the time, one of the many drivers is money. And so you, it feels counterintuitive to say, I'm ending this marriage with this person because we don't get along about money. And now we have to figure out how to talk about it afterwards. Yeah. So how can we do that better? Um, There's this, uh, I didn't coin it. So there is, I can't take any credit for it, but there's this little tool um, or this, uh, this framework called safe. And it's a framework for how you, um, approach a conversation around money with a partner. And for the record, this could also be a conversation you have with money with your parent, with your child, with your friend who always wants to split the bill at lunch, even though you just had soup. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a friend's episode, right? Split the bill, split the bill. (laughs) Exactly. We, I mean, at the end of the day, we all have different values around money and we also have our own internal narratives or kind of money scripts, which are the the stories we tell ourselves about money and what it does for us. I think oftentimes as humans, we think other people think like we do. And when we run into conflict, it's because that's not actually the case. Mm -hmm. And so part of this kind of safe method is helping you articulate those things and it being okay if how you feel is different than how someone else feels. But you know, I'm probably, you know, repeating myself at this point, but part of the habit methodology is awareness is step one, um, being able to be aware of your own needs and your own values. And then being able to hear someone else's is the first step before you actually take any action. So can I just say, that's like a superpower for most people walking on the planet. You know, we always say here that we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. That's our starting point. I I love that, Karen. And I love that framing. 
because you're right. Awareness sounds like a very easy thing. And then once again, you beat yourself up and say, why am I bad at this? Willpower is actually not a binary thing of whether you have it or you don't. It's actually something that you can train. And that is almost more like a gas meter that you're full or empty. Like, why do you think they tell you to exercise in the morning? It's usually because you've worked, used up all of your willpower at work during the day, doing things that you probably no one loves doing email. No one loves taking notes. I don't care if you tell me you like doing those things as a human, you are using willpower to force yourself to do that. So by the end of the day, you've spent all of your willpower. It takes willpower to have tough conversations. And so it's okay. If today you are not perfect at talking about money, it's okay. If you don't know what your money values are, the hardest step is really just to, to take the first one. Well put. Oh, right. Um, Let's hear about safe. We'll get into safe. So safe is speak your truth, agree to a plan, follow the agreement, establish an emergency response plan. So step one is the building your awareness part. Speak your truth. That can be sitting down with your, your partner and saying, Hey, this is This is how I feel about money. This is what gives me a pinch. Um, I can share personally the example that my my partner and I have when we're talking about money is he is a foodie. He loves to eat out. Um, He talks about, you know, he follows all of the restaurants in San Francisco. Me, I could eat the same Cobb salad and yogurt and Caesar salad every single day until the day I die. But we're in a relationship, so we have to compromise. And so that was actually one of the first, I'll call it a pinch that we had when we talked about what our values were. Mine was cooking is a waste of time. Eating is a transactional experience. And I want to spend as little time or money on it as possible. For him, it was cooking brings me joy. This is my hobby. And I love like eating and trying new things is exploration and the spice of life. Oh, that's such a good example. And thanks to you and your partner for just sharing transparently. It's just such a clear illustration, again, that we come from different places. And if you don't know, then you're just going to keep hitting on the place of conflict. Yeah, a hundred percent. Speak your truth. Speak your truth. I learned this in my Stanford touchy-feely class called stay in your lane um, or stay on your side of the net. And what it essentially means is it is okay if you don't agree on feelings, but to be able to name your feelings in a way that are just reflective of you. So the example is I could be saying to my partner, you spend way too much money on restaurants. Like you're blowing our budget. That's being over the net because I'm saying this is what you do, or I'm saying you're profligate, or you don't understand the value of money. Instead, it's about kind of keeping the narrative about yourself and saying, I feel, I feel uncomfortable when I see how much our dinner bills are. And it scares me because I'm worried that we're not going to be able to afford to buy a home. That is completely keeping the feelings on my side of the net. Oh, that's very good and very useful in all of our relationships. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and so that's step one is kind of, you know, call it laying your cards out on the table, speak your truth, speak your feelings, name what you value. Mm -hmm. The next place is agree on a plan. So once you have your kind of truths outlined, the next step is, okay, well, what are we going to do about it in some of those things may be in conflict, but it's always great to kind of start from an overall objective and work your way down. I actually think about decision-making as a pyramid. It's a um, mission, objective, strategy, plan, tactics, where the top is like the bigger vision and the bottom is how you accomplish that. This is actually organizational behavior, but it's very applicable to relationships. If you and your partner do not agree on something, more than likely you have a misalignment about something higher up in the pyramid. So if you and your partner are disagreeing on how you pay for your son's braces, then maybe there's a misalignment in the larger up objective or value. And it might sound silly to define your values and your goals for your divorce, but. Oh no, I think it's a great idea. That's what we need to do. And so what I would recommend doing is starting at the top, and then it's easier to have the conversations about the nitpicky stuff at the bottom. So 
outline, and maybe this is an exercise you do separately and bring it together, outline your individual and your collective goals. So you used the example earlier about sending kids to college or, you know, buying kids cars and paying for their insurance, um, you know, as you're splitting up, what do you, what do you, where do you want to live? What is your living um, circumstance going to look like? When do you want to retire? And then back into it and talk about, well, what's the path to achieving those things? How much is it going to cost to actually reasonably do those things? And then probably the stickiest and the hardest part, um, and this is for people who are together or divorcing, is how like be very honest with how much you make. Yes. I know a lot of people in relationships do not talk about that and it can feel very taboo, but that transparency is really key. And if you're going through a divorce, it's going to come out anyway. The the reality of that economic situation is going to is going to help you create that clear path. And once you can align on goals and recognizing you are going to have to compromise a little bit, you know, if you're if you both want to live in the same size house that you have right now, but all of a sudden, you know, you you're going from one house to two and for a while, the income for one partner is going to be less. That might have to be a sacrifice that you make and you need to talk about what that looks like. So so, agreements. Agreements. Yes. And so Mm -hmm. that's the big thing is align on a plan. You know, some questions you can ask is, how, how much do we think is fair and equitable for each of us to contribute? You know, how much do we each want to allocate to savings goals? Is there a time element in mind? You know, what the time we're divorcing, the time our kids are going to school, the time we want to retire. Are there things that we should split versus own wholly? One of the big things my parents talked about was splitting medical expenses versus paying for sports. You know, are you going to take the kids to these sporting events or are you going to be responsible for PTA things? It starts to get really, really tactical, but it all comes down to there's only so much time in the day. And a big thing is what are your non-negotiables? Of course, everything is going to need to be a compromise, but this is part of setting your own boundaries. What is absolutely necessary that is your kind of, I will not budge on this thing. And what are the things you are more willing to budge on? Because when you go into a negotiation, there's going to be some pressure there. And so knowing that upfront will really help you kind of stand your ground when you feel like you need to. The next one is all about execution. So the next is follow the plan. A plan doesn't work if you don't follow it. And so coming out of the conversation, it's nice to sort of have exit criteria and say, okay, These are the next steps we're going to follow and maybe setting a date in the future where you come back together and evaluate how that's going. Um, You know, you said this earlier, Karen, it's not one and done. You can reserve the right to change your mind. You guys can establish a plan and start following it and then say, hi, this isn't working for me. I need to reevaluate that's okay. And it's really important to kind of set those milestones and it's okay to come into the meeting that you have and say, I haven't done anything. And this is why that's still, that's still an outcome. And maybe that means it's not working for you. So follow the agreement. And then the last one is establish an emergency response plan. And so that's also an exit criteria. And what that means is if you cannot agree or you cannot execute the plan, you're almost pre-agreeing to what's going to happen if you guys get to that place. And so maybe it means we agree that if we try to do this for X period of time and it doesn't work, we will engage a third party, engage a mediator, um, hire a financial advisor, you know, what whatever options could be, you're collectively agreeing on what, when and how you will pull the ripcord if you're not able to do this by yourself. And there's also no shame in not being able to do it by yourself. I think that preemptive planning is so essential and valuable. So those of us on the other side of divorce, SAFE, S-A-F-E, because you are going to continue your financial conversations with your former spouse if you are still raising children. Give us that acronym real quick, what each letter stands for, and we'll get it in the show notes as well. Sure. SAFE, speak your truth, agree to a plan follow the agreement, establish an emergency response plan. Wonderful. We are chatting today with Jess Beyer. She is the founder, the brains behind Habit Money, which is a personal finance app that helps people develop healthy financial habits. Just kind of think Noom for personal finances. 
And when we come back from our break, we're going to get a handful of very tangible tactics and hacks to help you to manage your fruitful financial future. Stay tuned. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Are you thinking about getting divorced? Before you call a lawyer, call the good divorce coach, Karen McNenny, a certified divorce counselor, co-parenting specialist, and mediator. Karen's signature good divorce experience will guide you through your divorce journey from the day you make that difficult decision to the day the decree is signed, all for a predictable fee. The Good Divorce Coach will teach you and your partner how to get divorced and be divorced with less conflict and less debt. Visit thegooddivorcecoach.com to get in touch with Karen. A little birdie told me Voice America is on Twitter. Follow us at Voice America TRN. Welcome back to The Good Divorce Show with Karen McNenny. Have a question for Karen or her guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5788. That's 866-472-5788. Now, back to the show with Karen. Welcome back. Thanks for staying with us today as we talk about our relationship with money, which is complex for most of us. Money is always a trigger in the finances of the future when we're moving through divorce and how we can do so in a way that doesn't blow it all up, doesn't send us down the scarcity model, and where we can create two solid households that can provide not only for the children, but also provide for the individuals running that household. And uh, to bring us some of that wisdom today is Jess Byer. She is the founder of uh, a wonderful new financial app just released over a year ago called Habit Money. Welcome back to the show, Jess. Thanks, Kara. We don't have too much time left today, so I want to give our listeners a few very specific tactical things that they can begin to do or think about immediately starting today even. Where do we begin our healthy relationship with money? I love it. So if you're sitting there with your notebook, here's your to-do list walking away from today to uh, kind of begin your uh, financial health journey. And this might not be a surprise if you listen to the rest of this podcast, because I'm going to say the same thing I've said twice already, which is bring awareness to your spend tracking works. Maybe you're not someone who wants to track every day. Maybe you're someone who needs to just look at your credit card at the end of the month, but bring awareness to your spending. I know it's easy to want to be avoidant, especially if you know you've spent a lot, um, but that's always going to come back to bite you. And eventually you're going to have to look. And I promise you will feel better if you know where your money is. Imagine a world in which you don't worry about avoiding your credit card statement because you already know what's on it. Knowing where your money is going is just so critical. It's critical for your confidence and it's critical for your financial future. A friend always says to me, pay yourself first. And what she means is put your money in your savings before you spend it. And I just love this mentality because what you're doing is saying, I'm investing in my future self. Take the time to do this. And once you establish a routine, it's really not that hard. And if it's something that really stresses you out, that's literally what habit is here for. So we can help you get started. And I promise it's not painful Um, and can actually be fun. (laughs) But I find the ignorance fun where I don't really (laughs) see where it all goes. And it's very blind spending and that does not serve us. So tracking and awareness, job one, number two. Job two is, so once you know where your money is going and you've decided what you want to do with it, automations are a great way for the avoided person to be avoided and healthy. So automations are great to help you kind of overcome those tendencies for, you know, quote unquote, bad behavior or overspending behavior. Um, So one of my favorite automations is, and this is honestly something I recommend to all of my users. It's, it's what I use create separate accounts that are for separate things. So this is, you know, I'm not going to give you, I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not going to give you retirement and investment advice. I'm here to tell you how to structure your money. So you have the money to invest, 
I like having three buckets, your rainy day emergency fund. That's do not touch high yield savings account. There's your buffer savings account. That is for when you have spikes in spend. So things like, you know, you don't spend the same amount on travel every month. You don't spend the same amount on gifts every month. That's your buffer. So when you need to borrow from here, you're not borrowing from the emergency fund, which can also be the place where you put your state, your investment money. And then you have your checking account, which is where you pay all of your bills, either using, you know, you use your debit card to pay for things, or you use your credit card and you pay for your credit card statement out of your checking. My recommendation is to have your direct deposit go into your do not touch account and then set up automations so that you get auto transfers from that account into your checking and your buffer account. So simple math, let's say I make $5,000 a month. I want to save 2000 and I have three to spend. And I want to split that 2000 between my do not touch and my buffer. I would see when I get paid twice a month and I would set up auto transfers so that the day after those deposits happen. And so there's this, again, psychology out of sight, out of mind, if all you see in the account, your account is the money that you've budgeted for yourself to spend, you're more likely only going to spend that money. And what's super fun is when you, you know, are being avoided and not checking your savings account, once a quarter, you're going to say, oh, I wonder how much money is in my savings account. And you're going to look and it's going to have a ton of money in it and it's going to feel really good. And that's a really addicting feeling. Oh, that's great. And I think that's so opposite of what certainly even what I do, which is everything goes into my checking account and then I parcel out to my savings. But oops, I actually do want a new rug. So I'm going to just hold a little bit more back. And and it's just that simple. It's the slow erosion of decision-making every day that erodes our future financial stability. I love this idea of pay yourself first, which is really about your future. I've even heard it said like, don't put money in your college account for your kids, put it in your retirement. No one's going to give you a Pell Grant to retire, Karen. (laughs) (laughs) And like you said, it's not natural in our brain. We're hedonistic, instant gratification. Please give it to me now, which is also a generational difference. You know, my parents are in their eighties and they grew up in the shadow of the depression where everything was conserve and save and you never had enough. And unless there was $127 and 18 cents in the coffee can, you didn't go buy the new dishwasher. Whereas my daughter who's headed to college just got, you know, here's a credit card, please go spend, overspend yourself. That's what we do in America. And I think a lot of these, these financial stories get bred and born in our family of origin. I love that. And that's kind of my last, you know, tactical tip which is honestly the, the, I'm just following the the habit money uh, guidelines. So I'm not making anything up, but you're exactly right, Karen. There's this concept in financial kite psychology called money scripts, which is like it or not, we develop our own stories around money. So I thought your depression era example is so spot on and so generationally well relevant for, you know, people coming out of that moment and this societal need to hold on to everything. Like how many depression era parents and grandparents, when you go through their home, they don't throw anything away. Don't get me Um, started. That's a money script. Um, Mm -hmm. My my partner and I actually talk about this because um, I grew up feeling fairly fine. I never thought we um, had a lot, but I never felt poor until I applied to go to college and I realized my dad made $25,000 a year and we were at poverty level. And that really impacted my own financial scripts. And I still have a narrative around security and safety that comes from my parents' divorce and how much they made. And that narrative is money is security. And so I don't want to spend anything. My boyfriends grew up in neighborhoods where they were pretty wealthy um, and more wealthy by comparison. And so for him... Um, even though he grew up with more money, he actually has a very different attitude than I do because of our different upbringings. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he felt like he heard, you know, we can't afford this a lot. And so he really loves to make money so he can spend it and have experiences. And I want to reinforce that no script is bad. It's just 
what they are. If you are a parent going through a divorce or you're thinking about a separation, or you've already gone through that transition and you're looking at recoupling, this is a great opportunity for you to redefine what your children will see when you model healthy financial behavior, because whether you like it or not, they are listening and they are watching and the choices that you are making with your previous or current partner will impact how they think about money. And I really encourage you to the level of um, appropriateness based on age level to have the conversations about money and the value of a dollar and affordability. They are starting to teach this in schools, but this is really a lesson that I think is important coming from the home because your parents are your first teachers. That's right. Parents are the first teachers and financial literacy rests often on the shoulders of the home because it's not something that we're actively teaching it in the schools. And if there's old habits and patterns that don't work for you, this is your time to change them. And as you go out, those of you listening who are on the other side of divorce and you're managing you know, that past relationship with your former spouse, but you're looking to re-partner, then take new habits, literally Take habit money with you. Have your teenagers who are heading off to college and starting to manage their own money and figuring out how to do that. Set them up with habit money. So tell us, Jess, how do we get our hands on this tool? What can we expect from it? What do we need to know to move forward in our own financial health? Absolutely. Um, so I think a lot of times, Karen, people are the question is, when should I, when should I do this? And the answer is whenever you're ready. Um, a lot of people will find that they deal with money when they have to. And so, like you said, when you're having a money moment, if you're thinking about separation, if you just graduated from college, if you're thinking about having a baby, if you're planning to recouple and combine your finances, most life decisions are money decisions. And so now is the time to think about it. If you want to try habit, um, you can go to yourfinancialhabit.com and click on sign up and you'll go through a really easy form where you tell us a little bit about your financial situation. Guesses are fine. Again, I won't make you go through your credit card statement yet. And at the end of that, you'll schedule a, a call with a coach who will work with you to put together a personalized plan on how to um, bring awareness to your money and kind of do all of the things we've talked about today to get to your healthy future self. From there, it's completely text-based. So my philosophy is the best uh, financial app is the one you never have to open. So there is an app that sits behind the scenes that is available to you. But most of the engagement is through text message, either with the platform directly or with your coach if you need extra help. I think a big thing here is a human is really, really helpful when you're going through more of that emotional awareness. Right now, I have a beta product. And so I have beta pricing that is $29 a month. Um, everybody gets 30 days free. And what I say is if I can't help you save $30, I've got bigger problems on my hands in terms of running a business. <laughs> but you also need to be able to see the value of this. It feels very counterintuitive for me to say, hey, I'm pay me money to help you save. But I promise you it does help. And I feel so confident. I'm very happy to give you that 30-day investment. Um, that price will go up when the product, the full product suite is launched. So now is like a really, really great time to sign up. And most people also get to work with me because I'm a small startup growing business. So if you liked listening to me today, then that gets to be another extra benefit. You're probably going to be that financial coach on the other end. Tell us again that website and where to find this wonderful yeah. product. Have it's it your financial habit. So www.yourfinancialhabit.com. And there's a little menu icon at the top where you can click in a drop down and click sign up and you'll get taken to our getting started form where you can fill out your information, get a call booked and go from there. Wonderful. Jess Beyer, founder of Habit Money. What would you want to just say to our listeners today at the end of this financial discussion? What do they most need to know from you? I would say two things. One is um, you can do this. That little gremlin on your shoulder that says negative things to you, um, like you're not smart enough. It's too late. 
that little gremlin may have served you in the past, but it's not serving you right now. You can do this. None of this is rocket science. I was, I truly was in your shoes before. Um, and if someone like me who basically avoided paying their credit card for 10 years <laughs> can do this, so can you. It just sometimes you need a little bit of help. And that's where what we're here for. The second thing is there's no one right way to have a healthy financial future. I think in this day and age, especially with Instagram, especially with just kind of like this 24 hour online place, it's really easy to compare ourselves to others and to think that we are doing something wrong because someone else is doing things differently. Obviously, there are some basic financial principles that we should follow so that we are set up for financial health, like spending less than we make. But in terms of what you spend your money on and what you save for, that really comes back to your values. And so the sooner you can kind of get in touch with those and feel good about those, um, the sooner you will feel better and less stressed about money because you're more focused on what you want to do versus what everyone, either society or your parents or Twitter tells you, you should be doing. Jess Beyer, founder, serial entrepreneur, find her app and your next tool for the good divorce habit money. And a reminder to each and every one of you, everything will be okay in the end. And if it's not okay, it's not the end. Have a good week. Thanks for listening. Do you have questions or thoughts about this week's episode? Let us know by following The Good Divorce Coach on Facebook and Instagram at Good Divorce Coach. And leave a comment. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific or listen anytime wherever you get your podcasts.